Problem is, Andy doesn't like me to have anything that has any scent at all, so she won't let me use it. Ah. Ah. Women. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Hello. Hi, Matt. We are going to finally... Hi, Ezra. I'm here too. Finally, I recognize we're sitting across from each other. Get some well, dentist didn't, research didn't on the audience. show. We've we have a great too dental much, white too paper. Too much healthcare papers, not enough dentistry papers. We're going to change that today. That's our commitment to you. Uh, going to talk about John Kelly and his his role in uh, making the White House run more smoothly. And I have some thoughts on John Kelly. I'm excited <laughs> for that segment. It's going great. Um, but first, we're going to talk about taxes and and specifically. Taxing the rich, I believe. So there is the single most hilarious of all the Donald Trump subplots that has been playing out in the last couple of weeks. Um, it, it's really, I I don't like when everybody is always saying, oh, you know, Washington is more Veep than whatever it is, House of Cards, West Wing, because I don't think it's very Veep. But but this has been very Veep if you watch it, if you watch the HBO show. So a, a number of Trump's top advisors, but in particular, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, who's a former Goldman Sachs guy and will always hold a special place in my heart because he is one of the, the top producers on Lego Batman, which is a fantastic movie. I didn't know that Steve yeah, he he will never. I mean, he can almost. There's almost no amount of damage he can do to the country that Lego Batman can't outweigh in my in my heart. But but he's trying very hard, obviously, to to tip that and balance. So he's been going around saying that uh, the the reason that the Trump administration has unveiled a tax framework that at least as currently composed, and if you use reasonable and actually pretty generous assumptions to it, would end up giving 80% of its tax cuts to the top 1% of households, 80% according to the Tax Policy Center. The reason is that it's just really hard to write tax cuts that don't end up massively cutting taxes on the rich. He told uh, Politico's Ben White, the math, given how much you are collecting, is just hard to do. The idea that this crew of ex-Goldman Sachs uh, executives just like literally can't figure out how to write a tax cut that doesn't end up giving the richest folks hundreds of thousands of dollars off of their taxes while either raising taxes on some or giving very small tax cuts to the to the middle class is comical. Um, I, I want to try to offer the the nice version of this argument and and then let Matt, who wrote a really good piece on this, maybe maybe take it away. But what Mnuchin is saying, I think, is, and he said versions of this in different pieces in different places, but is it if you want to do a very large across-the-board tax cut, right, which is an important point, if you want to cut down every rate, class, and category, and then I guess also if you want to include a bunch of tax cuts that only help the rich, like the estate tax cut, then it is very difficult to avoid massive tax cuts for the rich. Also, because Donald Trump has said that he, one of his top priorities is bringing the corporate tax rate down to 20%. And given that mainstream reasonable estimations of corporate tax cuts say that those overwhelmingly, although not exclusively, end up helping out the rich. If if those are your categories, right, across the board rate cuts, massive cut in the corporate tax rate, and then a slew of tax cuts that only help the rich— then it is very hard to do that in a way that doesn't help the rich. 
Although even then you could offset your tax cuts for the rich with tax increases on the rich. So it's a little bit hard for me, honestly, to parse either why he's saying what he's saying or maybe more specifically why he thought (laughs) saying this would be a good idea. Yeah, I mean, we're an interesting point in Republican messaging on this, right? I mean, back in the uh, George W. Bush era, I felt like Republicans had a unified position, right? Bush put forward an across-the-board tax cut package, right? So basically every single person in America's taxes went down, at least a little bit, under George W. Bush. Uh, But rich people's taxes went down a lot. And Bush defended that as a policy choice, right? He said both that rich people paid a lot of the taxes, so it was fair for their taxes to fall down. And then he also said, what I think is an important point of conservative economics, that those tax cuts would be broadly beneficial, even if the direct impact fell on wealthy people, uh, because the economic growth benefits would be so large. Conservatives have not changed their mind about that latter fact, and it keeps sort of popping up, right? That was the argument of uh, the corporate tax paper that we talked about last week. It's the reason conservatives say they want to cut the estate tax. Um, and it's just, I don't know, it's its something conservatives think. Nothing has happened in the past uh, five years that have changed their minds about this. But the messaging has completely changed. Donald Trump, uh, as a candidate, he always had these giant tax cuts for the rich in all his various different tax plans. But he always said he was going to do a middle class tax cut. I mean, he even said explicitly that his plan was going to be bad for people like him. I mean, it wasn't true, but that was what he said. And Mnuchin said that they were not going to give the rich a tax decrease and right. the, the, the post-tax reform world would be distributionally equal to where it is now. Right. So they opened up this huge gap between the plans that they had on paper, which reflect what conservative economists think you should do, and what they said, which reflected what the sort of new model populist Bannon guys think you should say. And they're just there's just a huge yawning chasm. And so now they're trying to close that chasm, and they're a little confused about how to do it. So I think that's why you now have Mnuchin saying, like, oh, well, it, it was just, it was impossible to do a middle-class tax cut. But, like, you could do a middle-class tax cut if that's what you wanted to do. Uh, the Obama administration had plans for things like that. Uh, there's a lot of smart people at the Treasury Office of Tax Analysis. Uh, you could work it out all, all kinds of different ways. They're proposing a very regressive tax policy because that's what they want, but they seem to have lost the appetite for defending that proposition. Although Orrin Hatch went a little off message yesterday and was like, sure, the tax plan is going to help the wealthy. I don't see what's wrong for that with that, uh, which is, you know, good for him, but not, I guess, where the rest of the party wants to be. But I feel like this chasm is like pretty ubiquitous in like the Trump era of policymaking that we've been living in, you know, really since the election, since you saw Trump go out and campaign on certain ideas, the amount and there is often some level of disconnect between a promise made by a politician or by a president and what they're able to deliver. But the amount of disconnect in the Trump administration has just been a level beyond where, like you're saying, Matt, there is really no connection between the policy papers they are putting out and the things President Trump is saying. And other people just seem to have gotten on board with that, who, you know, I watch this most clearly in the healthcare space where you saw 
you know, President Trump saying everybody's going to have great health care and it's going to be cheaper and it's going to cover everyone. And of course, his plan didn't do that. There was never a plan to do that. But then all of a sudden, like former now former Secretary Tom Price is there saying the exact same things. Oh, Medicaid's not going to get cut. Just lying about the plan instead of actually acknowledging the policies that they have put forward. It seems like something we see repeatedly where, you know, tax cuts on the rich do not pull super well. People are not like jazzed about the idea rich people might get a tax cut. Cutting health insurance doesn't pull well. So you see a lot of talking points that really align with the polling that really speak to what people want to hear, but they don't align with the actual policy proposals. Although it was interesting in in healthcare, right? For for the longest time, like 75% of the way through the Obamacare repeal thing, there kept being enormous tax cuts on rich people's investment income, like bundled into the healthcare plans. And they would be saying like, oh, this will make your healthcare better or Obamacare is imploding. But then there was this just like huge tax cut for investment income of wealthy people. And I was ranting and raving about this constantly, but eventually Senate Republicans jettisoned it, which was fascinating to me because it raises the prospect If they feel that enormous tax giveaways to the rich are so unpopular that when push comes to shove, they will actually drop them from their plans, they should consider porting that philosophy over to their tax policy debate, right? I mean, if it's like both the case that they don't think this is a politically defensible idea and also the case that when push comes to shove, if what it takes to get legislation passed is to drop the idea of cutting taxes for the rich. Like, I'm sure this is not what they're going to talk about at lunch today uh, at the Senate Republican <laughs> Conference, but like, really, like, maybe they maybe they shouldn't cut taxes so for th- the rich. So this, I think, is an interesting direction to take this, because to, to what Sarah was saying, one thing that was interesting about what Donald Trump did in the healthcare debate, even if it's not what he did with the healthcare policies, was he laid out a series of highly popular positions that were completely contrary to what the Republican Party actually wants to do on healthcare. It is not the case that the Republican Party believes that it should be covering more people than Obamacare does, or at least it shouldn't make that a goal. It is not the case in any way that the Republican Party believes lower deductibles should be a feature of its healthcare policies. Like Again, they believe the opposite. Taxes are a little different than that. It is the case that at the core of a, a lot of Republican tax policy is the idea that what you want to be doing is cutting marginal tax rates on the rich. You want to be cutting the the amount of taxation on the next dollar a rich person earns because rich person are makers and they're super productive and you know you want them to have as much incentive to be productive as possible. Well, but, and as you hear that theory expressed, I'm just curious, is like the idea that those people accumulate wealth or that's like more of a trickle down. It's idea. much more it's more of a trickle down okay. that they're gonna that they're gonna come and invest and make things and build companies and that if they're able to keep more of their money, they're gonna have more incentive to work harder and build another company. Greg Mankiw, who's a, a Harvard economist who does this who who's was George W. Bush's chief economist, once used this example of of his own high marginal tax rate. And you know, if the tax rate is higher, he wouldn't go and give as many paid speeches. And it's like one can argue how important <laughs> like Greg Mankiw's paid speeches are to the world but but it is the case that like that's a like that's a reasonable calculation to make um and i think republicans would would choose a different example but that's a theory but but the thing i wanted to say here is that there are also other tax ideas republicans have or tax ideas that fit republican philosophies that would be popular and so unlike on healthcare where i think 
almost literally every Republican idea is unpopular and to some degree regressive. There are a bunch of ideas in the tax space that, that, that could be popular. So Marco Rubio and Mike Lee in the Senate have a proposal to expand the, the, the child tax credit and to make it apply not just to, you can not just deduct against income tax liability, but also payroll tax liability. That's a pretty progressive change. It would be a good change. It's a pro-family change. Um, that's pretty interesting. A lot of Republicans, you can, people argue about whether or not to think about this as a tax policy or not, but a lot of Republicans at least claim to be supportive of expanding the earned income tax credit as an anti-poverty policy that encourages work. Uh, Republicans could decide to begin to take aim at the payroll tax, both as an effort to destabilize Social Security and Medicare, but also because that's a tax cut that, that would, would help people. Or they could take aim at the employer side payroll tax to try to get employers to hire more workers. There are a lot of things that you can do that would count as tax cuts that would fit Republican ideology more or less, and that, that would end up with you having a pretty popular tax plan at the end of the day. Um, the thing that, that, that is that keeps happening here is Republicans end up either combining these things with extremely big upper income tax cuts or only emphasizing the upper income tax cuts. There's a good piece in the New York Times' upshot. Uh, I think it was last week now. But they, they were looking at different ways you could tweak this tax plan and what would happen. But something they noted, which I thought was a, a sharp point, was that in the tax framework as it currently exists, the benefits to the top 1% exist in the policies on which the framework is most specific. So the framework is very clear about the things that are going to make rich people richer. Um, all the, the benefits to other people and the ways to offset the benefits to the top 1%, right, like the mystery maybe fourth bracket that Republicans are considering, are the most ambiguous. So there's a lot of specificity among Republicans about how to cut taxes on the rich, and there's very little specificity even on their own policies to, to cut taxes for the middle class or to offset those, those tax cuts for the rich, which one way of saying it is just that really, as, as Matt is saying, cutting taxes for the rich is actually the core of their theory. And another way of saying it is that um, some mysterious thing is going wrong here and nobody knows what it is, but but that there is a, a more popular plan waiting in the wings for them if they, if they choose to pick it up. But a little bit of ideological flexibility here. Republicans could come up with a tax package that is tax cuts, isn't that regressive, like really does do some big things for the middle class and the poor, fits with what Donald Trump has been saying he wants to do from the beginning. There's nothing stopping them. But I do think an issue here, right, it's it's worth delving into the murky world of conservative tax theory. I shouldn't even say it's conservative tax theory, because honestly, what, what conservatives believe about taxes is what's kind of the most standard economic model if you if you if you do a optimal tax theory unit, right? And there's a distinction there between incentive effects of taxes and income effects of taxes, right? So if my marginal tax rate goes up, you know, per Greg Mankiw, I might be less likely to want to go out and do, I don't know what, sell some freelance pieces. Uh, but if my average tax rate goes down, so I just have more money, you have the opposite effect, right? If I had more money in the bank, I would be less likely to want to go out and work more. But if my marginal tax rate were lower, I would be more likely to want to go out and work more. So to optimally structure things from a, an optimal tax theory point of view, what you want to do is raise everybody's taxes and then cut their taxes at the margin, 
right? So that would mean, that's what a lot of this tax simplification is about, right? So something like the um, mortgage interest deduction saves me as a homeowner a lot of money, but it doesn't reduce my marginal tax rate at all. So you would want to scrap all that stuff. Uh, and, and ideally, you would want a very high tax rate on like the first dollar of earnings that everybody gets. So to like really, really soak the poor and have marginal rates decline over time. And now nobody takes optimal tax theory seriously enough to try to translate that like full, like you start out with a 95% tax bracket and then it lowers to 90 and eventually above a million dollars, there's no taxes. But that's like what optimal theory spells out. And it's a striking contrast to what I would call like common sense conservatism about taxes, which is that people like money and American people in particular are skeptical about the government as a custodian of money. So the general idea, maybe the government should spend less money and I should just have more, like that that has a lot of juice, right? But it's really different from the like marginal theory of how you manipulate tax policy to drive economic growth. But I think that marginalism is important to conservative politics because if you drop that, then you're left with the question of what is the conservative account of how they're going to grow the economy? Because liberals might say, oh, you know, we need like pre-K and we need free college and we're going to invest in people and blah, blah, blah. And, And what conservatives really have and have had for a generation or two is this idea that we are overtaxing business, we're overtaxing capital, we're overtaxing the most wealthy people, and that we need to undo that and and get things going again. And on the one hand, I mean, I think it would be obviously politically smart for anyone to drop an unpopular idea and pick up popular ones. Um, But it's like the the thread that's holding the whole edifice together. And if you just give up on that and say, no, we're manipulating the distribution of income and you're going to get just in a bidding war with Democrats for like who can soak the rich and distribute benefits to other people, the the whole the whole project is going to unravel. So I'm curious, you've spent like time looking at this, like where Steve Mnuchin says it's impossible to do this without cutting taxes for the rich. Like what does the plausible plan that, like, Republicans could come up with. What does it look like, the one that, I don't know, like, has smaller tax cuts for the rich? Like, I understand there's very high-income-specific provisions that you would jettison, those ones that, as we mentioned, have been spelled out in greater detail. But, like, what is that? Is there a conservative plan, like, in that space? I mean, I think one thing you could do, right, the, the Obama administration tried to push at the end the idea that you could cap all tax deductions at 28% deductibility, right? So if you did that, that would raise taxes on the rich without increasing marginal tax rates on the rich at all. Uh, Then you could leave the top bracket where it is, but you could cut one of the lower brackets that applies to the middle class. So marginal tax rates for some people would fall and you would have a beneficial supply side effect. Average tax rates for many people would fall Average tax cuts for some rich people would rise, but nobody's marginal tax rates would go up. So it's like, it's a little bit complicated and in some ways not that dramatic, but that's an idea that would 
be in line with both sort of basic politics that like middle class people would like low taxes. Nobody wants rich people to get a tax cut and also works with conservative tax theory. But I mean, Republicans like really want to repeal the estate tax. They've been talking about that for years and like only estates over $5 million pay the estate tax. So I don't know, like you either have to give up on that idea or you have to admit that you're cutting taxes on rich people. And I mean, it's fine. I mean, there's a there's a case. Uh, Milton Friedman's old uh, uh, PBS uh, show had a, I think, a somewhat persuasive <laughs> segment about the estate tax that like, why is it that a wealthy person who saves his money should end up paying more taxes than a rich person who just like blew all that money on Ferraris and stuff? And so it, it makes I, I see where they're coming from on that. But it's definitely a tax cut for rich people. And there's a couple other things like that in their plans. And I I just, I mean, you can lie, I guess, in politics. It's a popular strategy. But other than that, like, they should, they should defend it, I think. One thing I think is interesting here is that Republicans will, one distributional way Republicans do justify that these are massive tax cuts for, for rich people is by making the argument, which on, on some level I think people believe to be true, that just rich people pay all the taxes. So if you're going to be cutting taxes, you're going to have to be doing it on rich people. I mean, famously, you know, you have the 47% who don't pay don't pay federal income tax. Um, I, I do want to recommend Ramesh Panu wrote a piece, I think it was called Untaxing the Rich uh, in the National Review. And, and he's a conservative writer who, who focuses quite a bit on taxes. And he did something kind of interesting, I thought, where he, it was his own calculation, but, but he combined the share of taxes that all income groups were paying, not just in federal taxes and not just in payroll taxes, but also in state and local taxes. And state and local taxes have a tendency to be much more regressive than federal taxes um, because they, they tend to rely, among other things, much more heavily on, on sales taxes. So he writes that you combine taxes at all levels of government and the lowest earning fifth of households pays around 15% of its income in taxes. The middle fifth pays around 23% and the top fifth pays 33%. Um, with the top 1% paying a little bit more than a third of what the the, the top fifth pays uh, in total. So again, um, it, it's just, I think, a good thing to remember in this debate because when, when Republicans do get into the, the distribution conversation, they end up relying very heavily on how much the rich are paying as, as federal income taxes. And it makes sense that at the federal government level, they're thinking about federal income taxes or federal taxes, although payroll taxes should certainly be considered as part of that. But when you do think about all taxes, it's just a much less progressive system than people think it is. Not to say it's not a bit progressive, but again, bottom fifth pays 15%, middle fifth pays 23%, and top fifth pays 33%. I think if you're just looking at the idea that obviously the top fifth has more money than the bottom fifth, that just doesn't seem like a crazy distribution to me. Take a break. Let's talk about John Kelly. The Art of Shaving is the secret to a well-groomed man. The company was founded in New York in 1996, and they've been helping guys look their best for over 20 years. The Art of Shaving has a, a total routine covered, whether that's shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin, body, fragrance, whatever, they take care of it. The Art of Shaving's award-winning products formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients featuring pure essential oils. The four elements of the perfect shave have been created to deliver smooth results every day. You start by prepping skin with a signature pre-shave oil. You create a thick, foamy lather with shaving cream applied with a shave brush. You shave, then you replenish moisture with their aftershave balm. 
You can finish off the perfect shave with one of their five fragrances. They've got sandalwood and cypress, oud suede, vetiver citron, green lavender, and coriander and cardamom. Each cologne's been carefully assembled for a distinctive scent. Uh, the Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service that allows you to save on your favorite products and you never need to worry. Uh, so the best part is that Weeds listeners will get 15% off your first order and free shipping if you use promo code WEEDS. Uh, so to get this offer, you go online to theartofshaving.com and use our promo code WEEDS. You get 15% off your first order and free shipping. Visit theartofshaving.com for this special offer. Or they've got a lot of stores all around the country for a consultation with a grooming expert. Just step into one of their many retail locations. Uh, it's probably one near you. Check it out. Over the summer, uh, Renz Priebus, who I think had been perceived as overseeing a dysfunctional White House staff, got fired. Uh, there was the whole mooch thing. Anyway, he was out. And John Kelly, the Secretary of Homeland Security, was brought on. And, you know, I would say he was brought on too much fanfare. Um, I, I think this is the kind of thing where sophisticated political reporters would tell you today that they knew all along that Donald Trump wasn't going to change. Uh, but but I swear to God, there was enormous hype <laughs> about how, you know, this military man, he was going to come in. He was, in, there were stories about how he was improving Trump's information flow, but how he knew better than to manage Trump, but was going to manage the White House. Um, and I had a uh, Dara Lind on here, who had actually covered Kelly at the Department of Homeland Security. And I think that she, like journalists who'd covered Kelly when he was the commander at Guantanamo Bay, uh, recognized that John Kelly was not really some, like, amazing neutral technocrat who was going to come in and fix things, but was a guy who agrees with Donald Trump's tough guy, law and order approach to politics, who gets along with him because they have a fair amount in common. And Kelly, I, I think, stepped out on, on the briefing room stage last week to uh, lie about a Florida Democratic congresswoman, uh, which seemed like a, a strange choice for someone still enjoying a, a solid recommendation. But I'm actually more struck by the fact that the quality of the policymaking from the Trump administration has not in any obvious way improved. That on a couple big issues, right, both the Iran nuclear deal, but also I think the cost-sharing reduction subsidies and— North Korea tweeting. North Korea tweeting. and But the, to me, in some ways, the cost-sharing reduction subsidies, which are both a, a weedsy topic, but are like the most telling thing here, where like lots of Republicans in Congress wanted Trump to not kill these subsidies. Industry groups wanted Trump to not kill these subsidies. A intelligent, thoughtful person running a strong process with no clear investment in the healthcare issue should be able to step into a realm like that and say, like, Mr. President, the balance of the evidence is that the American people well, will the, be better nobody off. Nobody wanted these right. subsidies ended. No, well, not even the Republicans who filed the lawsuit against these subsidies wanted them ended. Like right. there's no one except for Trump who and was advocating for this. Yeah, position. and that's I don't want to say that like Rens Priebus would have stopped this because who knows. The fact remains that when Rens Priebus was chief of staff, this did not happen. You did not have. You had certain Trumpy eccentricity is obviously, but this kind of like republic, a, a substantive question of public policy in which the considered opinion of like 
everybody was that this would be a mistake. And like Trump just goes and does it. And like that's I don't know what the job of the White House chief of staff is, if not to stop stuff like that from happening. Yeah, I don't I mean, I guess I don't see it as much as like a Reince versus Priebus versus Kelly to go both last names issue, but something that like, you know, there, there, there are like things you can only contain for so long. Like Trump had been weighing this for, gosh, I don't know, like eight months or like pretty much since he has been president, he has been talking about ending these particular subsidies. And it felt like this particular decision to me was just something he had considered for a while and finally came around to the idea and decided to go for it. Um, I don't know. It's hard to know from the outside how much work Reince was doing to rein that in. But I do certainly agree with you that in terms of public policymaking, like this was something that nobody was advocating for, that Republicans on the Hill, you know, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell had said, like, we would prefer that you not do this. We would prefer you keep. And those messages were getting to the White House. Like, they were public about this. This is something there were a lot of news stories about Republican senators, House members, leadership advocating for a different option. And there was not the ability within the White House to to get there. It seems like it was very much something Trump has been fixated on, um, something that he has thought gives him more leverage and something he just decided to go for. So I agree there's like not a sense he is exerting a strong arm over the the types of policies that um, that are coming out of the White House right now. I want to take this in a pretty different direction because I disagree that the CSRs are the, the, the most interesting way to think about the Kelly tenure. So I think that what people believed was going to happen when John Kelly took over for Reince Priebus is that Kelly would run a more disciplined internal process that would keep Donald Trump from distracting his own administration and the country with these constant cultural fights um, and stunts and weird mid-morning tweets where he's attacking Bob Corker or getting into a spat with the NFL. And, and that very clearly has not happened. I mean, Trump has been tweeting against Rocket Man in North Korea, which is actually, I think, the, the most scary of the set, but obviously has done all this NFL stuff and, and had Mike Pence walk out of a game, has gotten into this and continued escalating this fight with this gold star widow who says that Donald Trump, you know, was pretty callous when, when sort of comforting her on the phone. And this, I think, is where Kelly was supposed to make a difference, right? This is where he was supposed to control Trump, control what Trump was hearing and seeing, and, you know, just get a more disciplined process so that they would actually be focusing on things like CSRs. Maybe you wouldn't like what they were doing, but CSRs are clearly part of their legislative agenda and, like, trying to create leverage on Democrats and Republicans to get their fix. I mean, that's all—I think they're wrong about where the leverage lies there, but that's all within a pretty normal concept. But the thing is, and I think you really saw this when when Kelly came out and gave that press conference last week, uh, Darlind, her her piece on this said John Kelly is a— field general, I think it was, or field commander in Donald Trump's culture war. And that's really true. What I think Kelly did there, you watch Kelly, and I think he helps you imagine what Trumpism would look like, cultural Trumpism would look like, if it wasn't infected 
with Donald Trump's mania and indiscipline and tweeting and, and crazy behavior. Kelly is a much more sober-minded guy. He presents in a much more authoritative way. He has a much more compelling personal story. Like Donald Trump's like little last job was like getting photographed in, in a throne made of gold constantly. Like John Kelly lost his son um, in in war and, and and was a general and you know. But he really wraps himself in that. And and Kelly is clearly very, very bought into this Donald Trump culture war. Uh, he gave this speech and it, it had this very weird thing where he said, like, you know, when I was growing up, women were sacred and life was sacred and, and gold star families were sacred. And, you know, there's a patriotism in this country. And I think you would look at this and say, yeah, I mean, Donald Trump is a guy who has really not brought a lot of respect to women to the highest office in the land. But no, like Kelly was looking at that and, and he looked at that Kazir Khan um, stuff with Trump and he saw all the attacks on the other side. Kelly, uh, in 2007, gave a speech about how he remembered a time when, quote, to stand up when the national anthem was played wasn't considered offensive to the sensitivities of the nation's self-proclaimed intellectual elite, which is as a writer at The Intercept said, you know, really, really predicting this whole NFL fight long before it happened. Uh, again, to go back to Dara's piece. Yeah, who she, in 2007 in the intellectual yeah, elite was concerned I, about I, I really don't know, actually. Um, it, Dara, Dara sort of compares Kelly to Jack Nicholson's character, Colonel Jessup in A Few Good Men, who says, like, I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions a manner in which I provide it. And she notes, but Jessup was the villain. But that's just very literally how Kelly talks. I mean, at the end of his speech, at the end of his press conference, he he talks about, for one, he only called on fam on journalists who had a connection to Gold Star families, which imagine if you did that on other issues, right? Like you can only ask them a question about health insurance if you're uninsured. Um, but but also, you know, he said that, you know, he pities the people who haven't served because they'll never understand what it's like to serve. There is a real way. Donald Trump is in many, many ways an extremely bad representative for the kind of cultural politics that he wants to represent. Um, he is unable to subsume his own bigotry and sort of nicer language. He's unable to control himself. He's had a million businesses that employed low-wage workers, immigrant workers, uh, low wages, did everything that he criticizes other people for doing. Um, he constantly is making subtext into text in a way that he shouldn't. He himself is very personally a, a real personal braggart and doesn't put the country first and doesn't put America first and doesn't have a kind of upstanding personal life. But there are people who like the sort of nostalgic cultural politics that Trump represents and have glommed onto Trump, um, even though they do not share all the ways in which Trump personally undermines that politics. And Kelly is one of those people. And he, he just, when I was watching him up there, he just made me imagine what it would be like to have a, a presidential candidate who basically ran on Trumpism, but ran on it from a military perspective. Um, and, and Trump has, by the way, tried to launder himself by just putting those people around him, like John Kelly, like Jim Mattis, like um, H.R. McMasters, and, and talking about it this way during the campaign, he clearly tried to use, uh, what was his name, the National Security, Michael Flynn, Michael Flynn. that way. But I, I think I think the thing here is that what you see with Kelly is like, Kelly's really bought into the, the cultural Trumpism. And the reason that the White House does not look different, I mean, in addition to the fact that Donald Trump cannot and will not be managed, is that 
Kelly does not want the things that feel like the most undisciplined and distracting parts of the White House to go away. Like, Kelly agrees with Trump on this. He agrees with Trump on this fight. He agrees with Trump's loathing of the press. He once gave him a sword and said on, an, on a hot mic, you can use this one on the media. Like, Kelly is bought in. And I think it's a mistake to think that the only people who can represent Trumpism have all of the personal failings of Donald Trump. And, and Kelly is proof of it. That is why I want to go back to the stupid cost-sharing reduction <laughs> subsidies. Because, again, if you're trying to imagine this culture warrior, military general kind of thing, like, one of the downsides of that figure, from my political point of view, is that that person would probably be more popular and, like, more politically successful. But one of the benefits of it is that that person wouldn't necessarily be so stubborn and ignorant about everything. Like, there's nothing about Donald Trump and John Kelly's shared loathing of non-white people that requires you to blow up the, the health insurance market, right? One could have expected a newfound injection of technical competence into the White House, right? An appreciation that just as we expect politicians to defer to professional soldiers on questions within their area of professional competency, we should pay some attention to what environmental protection agency scientists say about toxic chemicals, right? That like, if the military had a question that involved the toxicity of chemicals, I think that they would address that question by asking some scientists what's going on. But like the way the Trump administration is addressing it is by asking lobbyists for chemical companies. And the extent to which nothing has been actually achieved, not just in terms of the tweets, but in terms of like how Trump conducts the government is to me, it tells you something, right? And it tells you not just that Kelly shares some of Trump's ideas about the culture war, but that he shares some kind of just fundamental indifference to the conduct of the American government and the impact on human beings of the various decisions that these guys are out running around making. And like that, to me, is the, the fundamental horror of Trump-era governance. I mean, you're going to have people who just disagree about immigration or disagree about like what it means to respect women or things like that, and we can have some back and forth. But to have just people running who just don't don't care if the things they do work, it's it's disturbing to me. And I think and I think people had some reason to be optimistic that like the generals were the generals are like smart and know how to do things. And like there's just no evidence that anything has gotten better. Do you think it's an indifference or like an inability to like rein in Trump. I don't know if, like, either, and, like, maybe they intersect in some sort of way, but I think one thing that's, like, hard for me to tell is, like, maybe John Kelly, like, does have, like, an indifference to CSRs, like, doesn't really care, that's not his cup of tea, or, like, an inability to convince the president that he should, you know, take a more pragmatic course, that you should study the options, like you're saying, research it, look at what would be best for the American people. I, I strongly think that this is an overestimation of, of Kelly, of the military, of, of the whole of the whole situation. John Kelly did not come in to reorder how President Trump sees the world. I don't think he, I think that somewhat almost properly, he wouldn't even see that at his role. He wasn't elected. I I don't think that not only does he not have strong opinions on that stuff, but 
I don't think that um, it would really occur to him. It'd be a very strong role for the chief of staff, not just to manage information flow, but to, to, to try to shape outcomes quite so much. I don't think you need to believe there's indifference here. I think that you need to believe that there is respect here. I think that the question is, does John Kelly respect Trump and like Trump's intuitions and his basic ideologies and the man he serves and the 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 way in which that man somehow authentically represents the American people enough so that when he's thinking about what do I do with the process that, that Trump operates in, that rather than saying, how do I organize a process that will bring Trump to different conclusions than Trump would naturally come to, instead he organizes a process that is actually going to bring Trump to the same conclusions, but just try to make things less chaotic. I mean, I think if you go back and look at those early pieces about the new paper flow and all that, what you see is an effort to bring down chaos. Like the amount of people who are just running into Donald Trump, uh, uh, you know, in and out during the day and just driving him in a million different directions. Donald Trump has stacked his administration and everybody around him. He does not hire good people, but those are the people who Kelly is trying to like make sure their briefs reach Donald Trump. And it's not just like randos who Trump liked from his previous life who get to come into the office. I just think that we are mistaking order for um, something that is a much more profound reshaping of, of an internal process than, than what Kelly was doing. Let's take a break and then talk about dentists. Everlane is a company that doesn't believe you should be paying $50 for a t-shirt that only costs $7 to make. Uh, nobody wants to do that, but, but a lot of us accidentally end up doing it. But with Everlane, you never need to overpay for quality clothes. They make premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups, and they tell you your real cost, so you know you're never overpaying. Uh, so they want you to know what you're paying for and why. They're radically transparent about every step in their process, from the materials they've sourced to the ethical factories that they work with. And because Everlane sells direct to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. There's no markups. Their clothes look better, they cost less, and they last longer. Uh, they got essentials like their Cotton Crew t-shirt. They're exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish. They're made from quality materials. I, I know my wife loves a, a bunch of their different t-shirts. Uh, I personally love their Twill Weekender bag. I use it all the time when I travel. I've gotten them for gifts for other people in my family. It's really, really cool. Uh, they got other just sort of basics. Men's Japanese Oxford, Cashmere crew, straight fit denim, uh, slim fit jeans. It's like the basic foundations of any kind of normal person's wardrobe, looking good at a good price. Timeless essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. And so right now you can get free shipping on your first order when you go to everlane.com slash weeds. That's everlane.com slash weeds, everlane.com slash weeds. All right, so we have got a great white paper I've been dying to discuss. It is called Health Services as, a, as Credence Goods, a Field Experiment from a Team of Researchers from the Center of Economic Research in Zurich. What they did, which is kind of, um, I was reading through the methods of this experiment. They found this guy in his mid-20s, and they sent him to, I kid you not, 180 dentist appointments. So same guy. Who, because of what they, one thing they wanted, they wanted to see what kind of treatment do dentists recommend? Is it always the same? This is like my nightmare. <laughs> this is like such a bleak winter. <laughs> <laughs> like you're thinking of some poor grad student in Zurich who's like, I really need the money. I guess I'll do it. They, they you know, send out an email to 6,000 people. They find one guy in his mid-20s who um, has slight 
tooth decay. Not bad enough it should be categorized as a cavity or warrant any sort of fillings, but like enough that it shows up. So he has these x-rays he brings with them to each dentist appointment and says, you know, what should I do? What sort of treatment do you recommend? And um, the thing that they find here, which confirms a lot of my suspicions about dentistry, was that 28% of the dentists told him to have at least one cavity filled. Some dentists told him to have as many as six cavities filled. They, before, you know, they went into this whole project, they had four reference dentists who said, you know, this definitely does not warrant a filling. This is not bad enough. The proper dental advice is to, you know, brush your teeth regularly, take good care of it, and see the patient again in a year. But the thing they find is there's a lot of information asymmetry in healthcare and dentistry where you're essentially relying on this person who has more expertise or knowledge to tell you what it is you need to do. They found higher rates of overtreatment among doctors who have shorter wait times, suggesting that dentists who have more time on their hands are the ones who are more likely to suggest additional That's work. amazing, by the way. Um, and it really, you know, this spoke to a personal experience I had where I'd never had a cavity in my life, and I switched to a new dentist who was suddenly like, you need four cavities filled immediately. So I got them done because it was my dentist. Like, what else am I supposed to do? But it really speaks to a lot of the information asymmetry in healthcare, how we're in a lot of ways, a little bit stuck looking at, um, you know, the treatments our providers are recommending and going with them, especially in something like cavity fillings where, you know, it's not necessarily hurting you. You don't have the technical knowledge to, like, read the x-ray. Like, what are you going to do if they recommend a cavity filling? On the other hand, all the incentives for the dentist are, like, to fill more cavities because you're going to get paid more, like, you know, your patient's probably not going to be worse off. They're going to be a little worse off financially, but, you know, they're not going to die from this procedure. It seems like the incentive structure completely suggests the behavior, especially for those who don't have enough work coming in to to recommend more, more cavity fillings. So I have terrible teeth. Or at least dentists have throughout my life told me I have terrible teeth. Maybe maybe your, I'm just getting the over Your teeth are fine. We read this paper. It's so <laughs> I have more than I have tw- at two different points had eight cavities um, wow. that have then all been filled. I've had more root canals than I can count. Um, I got. I my think you maxed teeth. out our dental. I did. Yeah. Didn't you? So th- this stuff. This is very unnerving to me. Um, now, obviously, people can still have problems, and I think it's likely that I, I really did have problems, but. It is so difficult. And I I think this is, by the way, a a lesson that's just about healthcare more generally. When you go in and you go to a healthcare professional and they tell you something is wrong, it is just difficult to disagree. Um, You don't have the information. I don't know how to read tooth x-rays. I don't really know what to think about it. I've had bad teeth traditionally. I don't really want to go to another dentist every time somebody tells me I have something wrong. If I did go to another dentist and that dentist disagreed, I wouldn't want to go to a third dentist. To then and you're a, spending more money and on I'm each spending visit. more money on each one. Um, and I also do not know how to rate if my dentist is any good. I mean, he's a super friendly guy. Uh, he's nice to me. Um, I don't, you know, when I had a super bad series of problems, like I wasn't impressed by the people I got referred to. It's it's very, very, very difficult to be an informed consumer in healthcare. And by the same token, we have for a lot of, re- we really, really, really want to believe the best of our healthcare professionals. Um, we want to believe the best of them because oftentimes they're very good and they've often devoted their lives to helping people. But also it would be really tough 
to go into the American healthcare system being super skeptical of the motivations of healthcare providers. If you want to go into Best Buy and feel like the people there are trying to sell you a TV because they want you to buy a nicer TV, like that's okay. It, it doesn't scare you that much. Like you, you can figure it out and you can decide if you want a TV, but you really want to believe that your doctor or your nurse or your dentist is like just telling you what you what is the truth, right? Because otherwise it's too much anxiety, it's too dangerous. I, these things are too personal. And so we're, we really trust what medical providers tell us. And yet we have reams of information at this point that just says, and I'm not saying any of these dentists are, I don't know, like lying or being super cynical. Some of these might be a genuine like disagreement about treatment sensitivity. But the fact that you had more over-treatment among the dentists who had less demand inside their practices, that's very telling. Um, it's re- I mean, that is that that means that the data is all lining up in a certain direction. I also want to note another thing, which is that they observed a lot less overtreatment recommendations for a patient who appeared to who appeared to the dentist to have a higher socioeconomic status than a patient with a lower one. Um, but that difference disappeared uh, in the condition where the patient then signaled that they had done some online research and then looked into this and had some ideas of their own. So to the extent that the doctor thinks they can get one over on the patient, that appeared to increase dental overtreatment. It is hard to, to navigate this system if you if you begin to think of um, people who provide you healthcare as just like kind of salespeople like any others. And I'm not saying they are salespeople like any others, but they do respond to economic incentives in ways that are are discomforting to really consider. Something that makes me think is, and I think it might be productive for for policymakers and, and citizens even to think more about the sort of supply side factors in, in the healthcare system. That one of the things that's interesting about this, and I I I heard about this dentist joking around uh during the 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 recession, uh, where it's saying that like, well, you know, with a lot of people losing their jobs, uh, you know, you might lose your dental insurance, so there might be cutbacks. So they were seeing fewer bookings. So like now was the time to start recommending root canals to the remaining insured patients. I don't know if that really happened, but this is like a thing a dentist told me, um, is that we create as a society a certain number of healthcare providers. And then those providers are allocated by a mix of systemic and, and voluntary factors to different places. And then the system tends to act to just fill the pipeline, right? Like, and I think the people mostly within the constraint of that imperative that they are filling the pipeline do a reasonable good faith job to triage the people correctly, just like at the emergency room, you know, they're considering like what's a real emergency, what's not. Um, When the dentists have lots of people who just want to come in and get their teeth checked, they don't like book people for unnecessary fillings and things like that. But like they want to be working. They're there to help people with their teeth. And like the more excess capacity there is, the lower the bar they set that people need a tooth intervention. And if you think about the opposite, right? I mean, if you think about a rural medical practice in an area where there are very few doctors, like that guy is going to set a high and perhaps counterproductively high bar for actually treating people and being able to see people because you can only do what you can do. And so you're going to take on, you know, the cases that that seem most most egregious to you. And that there may not like be anything we can do to fix this problem in terms of, you know, do we have like more skin in the game or some complicated 
system of, you know, indicators or quality measures, or we need like Uber, but for dentists or something like that. And that instead, we just need to be more intentional about from a resource allocation perspective, like how many dentists are there? Where are their dentists? We know there are parts of the country where people are like chronically undertreated for dental problems. And like, what can we do to get more dental supply there? Um, does it mean that we have oversupply of dentists in some places and, and don't really need it? You know, things like that, just like owning up to the fact that like people are not going to control this well and that an endless cycle of, of sort of tweaks is, is not going to deliver like optimal dentistry. Well, there is some level of this in medicine where you do have federal regulations around the residency programs, how many doctors we train in different fields. And there's always an amount of protest. You know, we don't have enough in specialty X, Y, or Z. It's essentially an attempt at at that exact sort of thing, controlling the amount of supply. I think doctors, you know, often argue, well, we're just not being given enough. We need more, particularly in primary care. Um, I don't really have the resources to adjudicate that fight right here. And, And I think, you know, like from the dentist perspective, I do get, you know, the guy they're sending around, he does have some tooth decay. So if you're the dentist who has an opening next Friday and you say, well, there's some tooth decay, I think maybe in the long run this will be helpful. Like, I don't think it's a nefarious thing. I think uh, you, you do see some dentists who are re- recommending six cavity fillings. And like, that seems like something odd. And it's like a very, um, it's a very short like, like there are not a lot who are recommending six. And you kind of wonder about the people who are recommending six is one of the reasons they have such short wait times is because they are not attracting many patients because they are making somewhat outlandish treatment plans. But I think one of the things that also, you know, signals to me, I've been thinking a lot about healthcare billing. I'm working on a new project about emergency room billing. Um, if you'd like to send us your emergency bill, do it at erbills.vox.com. And one of the things, you know, they did this study in Zurich where most people, the National Health Insurance Plan doesn't cover dental. They said about 85 to 90 percent of dental spending is completely out of pocket. And there's a huge range in the cost of treatment these dentists are are prescribing, anywhere from a few hundred bucks to over $2,000 for the people who are suggesting six cavity fillings. One of the things I feel like I've become more cognizant of in my billing is a lot of healthcare recommendations, especially in the U.S., they happen without any regard for price, without any regard for, like, what is this going to mean for this person to take on this bill? Instead, it's more, well, I think I am a doctor. I think this is the right treatment, so I'm going to prescribe it to you. But $2,000, you know, that's like a significant amount of money to spend on these cavities. And I think it's one of the things you're seeing here is there's less regard for what it's going to cost the the patient and more like, well, I'm a doctor and I think you you need this, so I'm going to recommend this treatment. Um, but it can often be, there's often a cost, an actual financial cost to prescribing a big amount of treatment that I don't think gets taken fully into consideration when when doctors are treating patients. Yeah, I mean, that that's true, obviously. Like, there's, there, there is a real cost to this kind of thing. And, and I mean, of course, you do also... I mean, you shouldn't screw customers over, right? Which is like fundamentally what we're talking about here in a like out-of-pocket payment system. I, I, I'm just struck by the fact that like nothing seems to work exactly to 
to reform this kind of process, right? That like the dental care system in Switzerland, as best one can tell from this paper, has like a lot of the like markety yeah. attributes, right? Like there, there is there does not appear to be a ton of social concern in Switzerland that low income people might be missing out on critically important tooth fillings. Instead, it's like, it's consumer-directed, blah, blah, blah. And just Switzerland is a very affluent country. People, like, they want to go see the dentist. If the dentist has some spare time, they're like, you got to get your tooth filled. And if people hear the dentist say they need treatment, like, they want to go do it because, like, all of... And, and like, that that is also how I would respond, right? Like, nobody wants to be the, like, insane, penny-pinching, like, not-getting-my-teeth-filled kind of guy. We're just all, like, born suckers out there. And, I, I, like, I don't know. I, I like, think there are I think there are things that are effective on this. And, and I think this might open up a longer conversation than we, than we fully have time for here. But taking this out of dentistry and into other parts of healthcare... How you pay doctors and whether they are paid on fee-for-service and piecework versus whether they are paid on salary versus whether they are paid on a salary and capitation system Mm -hmm. where they basically make more money for doing less does really change how much they treat. So in England where you get capitation payments and you make more money for doing less to people, England – I think the consensus is that England undertreats a little bit compared to to what you might want. Is that why they have the bad teeth? Uh, I, I don't know so much about their dentistry, but I believe that's actually part of it, is, is, is my understanding. Um, whereas, like, the Kaiser Permanente system in America, compare which it, which is quite big in California, where I come from, and, and I was on Kaiser when, when we worked at the American Prospect together. Um, I think that was when I was on Kaiser. No, when Maybe, you were at the Washington Post. When I was at the Washington Post, I was on Kaiser. Um, they have salaries, which, again, is different, and they, they treat less. I mean, it was just clear to me. I, I had heard this, but also I thought it would work out great, but— they, you know, I would email with my doctor and like the doctor did not want me to come in, you know, like compared to other doctors, like I'd be like, I got a thing like, yeah, let's see how that goes for a couple of <laughs> weeks. Um, and, and it worked out fine um, versus, you know, the experiences I've had uh, on fee for service where the doctors are very much and including my dentist, like very much like, yeah, why don't you come and get that checked out? Like, l- l- let's take a look at that in the office. And so I do think it is possible to structure payment systems such that, I mean, look, like we're, we're journalists, right? When you are a freelance writer and particularly if you're a freelance writer getting paid by the word, like there's a real incentive to make that article longer. And whereas like I'm on salary at Vox and if I just make this article longer, I don't make any more money. And so I don't just make articles longer for no reason. Uh, it's how you pay people does does change their does change their incentives. Now, balancing that with quality. And I mean, uh, the Obama administration had a lot of experiments around that in, in Obamacare. And, you know, I don't think that those are being carried out all that well at this point under Trump. I think bundled payments has gotten there's been some gutted. slowing down. Of yeah, these that's a, a, another conversation. But but there's thinking on this. There are things you can do. There are ways you can manipulate the payment system to, to try to address it. And perhaps someday we shall. <laughs> well, that's the weeds. That's um, the weeds. If you have not been listening to Sarah Cliff's brand new The Impact podcast, which made it all the way up to number four on iTunes. Yeah. That was fucking cool. That was exciting. Her podcast is amazing. It's The Impact. You can subscribe to it wherever podcasts are subscribed to. And you should because it's great. And the end of the first one um, made me emotional, and it's all it's all great. Oh, if you got emotional, number one, number two is it's yeah, I got two's a, a bit listening. of a tearjerker. I'm, I'm, but... I'm, I'm actually a little afraid of two because I know how good that story is, and how like when I say good, how wrenching that so story. So listen is. to all the, the feelings, feelings in real people. Also, on number one, you will get to hear Matt Iglesias 
in a, a real wonderful moment yes. impersonate the U.S. American healthcare system while consistently chanting USA just softly. Pretty great. It, there, there's something pretty unique about that experience. Out. It's fantastic. Yeah, I didn't get invited to be on episode one of The Impact. You, know, you, don't, you don't have the acting chops. I know. Sorry. <laughs> it, just, I realized how many other people got to play a role and I just get to promote. Anyway, it's good. Go subscribe. The Impact by Vox on Who's podcast. Who's on the Ezra Klein That's- show these days? Actually, this week, I have a pretty non-political guest, Tig Notaro, who's an amazing comedian. Uh, And we talk a lot about her schooling experiences, and uh, she she dropped out of high school. I also talk a lot about sexual harassment in Hollywood in the aftermath of of the Weinstein scandals. Uh, She's called out Louis C.K. on sexual harassment. He's actually an executive producer on her show. So we talk a bit about that. It's it's an interesting conversation. And Matt, thank you for asking. Oh, yeah. You're very welcome. You're very (laughs) welcome. All right. Thank you, Ezra. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks to our producer, Peter Leonard. And we will be back Friday with more weeds and no real people.